Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Caged In Presents Coppola Connections, as ever brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Pat Syllabus. This is episode 60 of our Coppola journey and if you are new to the podcast, what we do here is we watch every single film in the Coppola family collective filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time. I don't do that alone, however, I'm joined by a guest, and today's guest is an absolute doozy. It's a return guest, it is the one, the only, James King. More on him very shortly. And the film we are discussing this week is Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. If you've not seen this film, we get into spoilers off the bat. We kind of really, yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we spoil this film. The film itself spoils elements of the film. We kind of skirt around things, but we get into a lot of fun topics here as well. We get into some uh, talk of nepotism, James's encounters with the Coppola families, a lot of fun stuff. Um, if you haven't seen this film or haven't seen it in a while, I would really recommend a fantastic 4K and Blu-ray that has just been released by Studio Canal. I was lucky enough to be gifted a copy and it is a beautiful transfer that just looks stunning it really does this film justice you may notice at the end of this conversation the james's audio went a bit squiffy we talk about electro artists in this uh episode where we talk about french duos james very much does an impression of daft punk here and that is no fault of his own that is fault of zoom uh, zoom and the internet was bugging out a bit so there are slight technical issues but it doesn't really detract from the main body of the episode it's kind of in the roundup and the uh, final questions so but you get the gist of it anyway so yeah just watch out for that so with all of that out of the way i guess that all that's left to do is to drape over your sisters whilst listening to records round up your mates and grab your telescope and spy on the neighborhood girls be a heartthrob at your local high school and invite said girls to the homecoming dance as we make some copla connections with the virgin suicides 
on this episode, we're putting on our summer dresses. We're looking longingly as we sit in a picturesque field and we'll thumb through some diaries of the Lisbon sisters as we discuss the 1999 suburban drama Virgin Suicides. Based on the novel of the same name by Jeffrey Eugenides, the film stars Kirsten Dunst, Hannah Hall, AJ Cook, Leslie Heyman, and Chelsea Swain as the Lisbon sisters, Kathleen Turner and James Wood as their parents, Josh Hartnett, Robert Schwartzman, Lee Kagan, Noah Shabib, Jonathan Tucker, and Hayden Christensen, some of the neighborhood boys and their classmates. The film is written and directed by this episode's Coppola connection with her big screen debut, Sophia Coppola. To help me navigate the tumultuous teen years and help me determine if the Coppolas are the greatest film family of all time is a man who's written the book on teen movies, Hollywood hairdos and Keanu Reeves, as well as being BBC Radio 2's film critic, a presenter, a broadcaster, a podcaster, and as it's his second time on the podcast, I'd like to say a friend of the pod, James King. How are you, James? Well, I'd forgotten I'd written a book about Hollywood hairdos, so thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> uh, but yes, no, well, good, thank you. And this is this is a really special movie to me, actually, The Virgin Suicides. Mm. Um, I, I sort of even remember seeing it for the first time and where I was and everything like that. So um, looking forward to talking about it. And um, it's, yeah, like I said, it's something I've, that, that's sort of been with me ever since it came out and holds a special place in my heart. So out of all the ones, and I mean, dare I even say more than The Godfather and things like that, mm. Apocalypse Now, I think out of all the Coppola movies, uh, the Coppola family movies, maybe this one is is my ultimate one. Well, I, I was thinking what was really a fascinating thing of the two films you've come to talk, you've, you've come on the podcast to talk about. Last time you came on to talk about The Outsiders, and the, this time, the Virgin Suicides, which kind of feel like I don't know, like two sides of the same coin of kind of both looking at like t- yeah, teenager and b- both kind of retrospectives to twenty years past as well. Obviously, the Outsiders was the nineteen fifties from or like the nineteen eighties, like this kind of the, the thirty years, and then you've got yeah, the Virgin Suicides, which is the nineteen seventies, and it's kind of almost like Sophia Coppola was kind of like using the Francis Ford Coppola playbook of being like, let's take a book, but let's do something for teenage girls that my dad did essentially for teenage boys in the 1980s. And we'll, we'll get into we'll, we'll get into all of that. But before we do, I wanted to ask you, James, when did you first become aware of Sophia Coppola as, as, as a kind of, well, I, I guess it might have been first as, as an actress. Did yeah? Yes, yeah. It was. I remember reading Empire magazine when Godfather Part Three came out, and that was when I read about all these are pre-internet days. So read about all the, well, the problems with making that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Winona Ryder pulling out, um, and Sophia coming in, and the 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 really critical reviews of her performance. Um, and I don't think I saw Part Three at that point. Maybe I was put off by the bad reviews actually around Sophia's mm. acting. Um, but that was when I first came to know her. And you sort of felt just the way it was pitched and me being a kid, really, when that came out. So I didn't know any better. I just thought, okay, this is a rich, privileged girl, you know, doing her thing or trying to do her thing. And it didn't work. And that will probably be the last we hear of her because what mm. does she need to work for, really? Um and then, of course, many years later, uh, well, it felt like many years, but actually it's not that many years, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's what, like seven, Six? eight years later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, then along comes The Virgin Suicides. I hadn't seen her short film Lick the Star before that, but along comes The Virgin Suicides. I think I saw it at the London Film Festival. So it had a bit of prestige to it because mm-hmm. it was showing at a major film festival. And um, she completely changed my opinion of her. And the same way, I think, with a lot of people. Um, she moved on from being the girl who'd been not very good mm-hmm in The Godfather Part 3, to being actually a really exciting, new, young, fresh director, yeah. writer-director. I, I, and I think that whole thing with The Godfather Part 3 really kind of shook her to her core, because it's only yesterday uh, a, a, a TikTok from her own daughter kind of like has gone viral, and like her talking about how her mum doesn't like her to have social media. And I think like any interviews with Sophia Coppola, she's very cagey when it comes to talking about her family. And it's kind of like, it's like that experience was like, no way am I, am I, am I pushing my kids into that world? Cause yeah, it feels, I don't know. There's, you can see Francis had the right intentions and was obviously in a bind, but like, I don't know. It feels like, yeah, it's kind of, it's come back. I think, yeah, I think stuff like that has like come back in, in, in her career. I think like a, a film like Somewhere, another Sophia film, is very much a film her going, hey, like it wasn't all peaches and cream with my dad. Do you know what I mean? Like I've, I've, I've used the avatar of a, of a Hollywood like actor, but like it, it was tough growing up, as tough as it can be to have all this yeah. excess and wealth. But also she had a dad who essentially has a gambling problem when it comes to making movies. Do you know what I mean? He will put the house on the line, as we're seeing at the moment with Megaropolis. He's kind of like put put the vineyards on the line to to, to, to self-fund the movie. So like... Yeah, <laughs> uh, nice use of the word cagey, by the way. In that. Um, uh, but yeah, I totally agree. And uh, it's because of the, the, the way journalism was when The Godfather 3 came out and you're sort of quite limited really in terms of how you can pick up on news this you know in the early 90s like i said i learned about it all from empire magazine um you you maybe don't hear both sides of the story and i think maybe sophia didn't even give her side of the story at that point Mm. but but since then has talked about it and we have found a bit more about it like you said found out that the sort of the um that her unhappiness at the whole thing as well and it, she wasn't just being some um privileged teenager going please daddy put me in your movie <laughs> um and um and i think she's been very honest about it and yeah her, the, their childhood sounds fascinating i remember interviewing roman her brother once um and he was telling me about being on the set of apocalypse now and all this kind of stuff and just like being in the back of a you know land rover or something as they're driving around the philippines you know yeah. and it's like wow my god I, br- I was brought up in like a village in suffolk <laughs> you know and this dude's on the set of apocalypse now yeah. um so it on the one hand that sounds really exciting but you know sometimes children also crave some kind of order in their life and um that's clearly something they didn't have as much of and i do think that her fascination with being a young uh, being a teenage girl as in virgin suicides or just young women you know a lot of young female characters and characters growing up adolescent characters i think she's covered that ground a lot and that is clearly something that's very close to her heart mm-hmm. in terms of thematic um in terms of um 
just revisiting and maybe working through some of her own mm -hmm. uh, issues from her own teenage years. Boredom, she does really well. That sort <laughs> of feeling of that feeling of being slightly trapped by, I mean, the Lisbon sisters in the Virgin Suicides, and it's not like they're rich, but at the same time, they're absolutely middle class. Their dad's a teacher. They've got a relatively nice house and, you know, relatively comfortable and well off. Of course, Marie Antoinette is a princess, um, but they, all these characters, they feel trapped. And so you certainly get the sense that some of that probably is what Sophia felt as well. Mm -hmm. uh, growing up rich with a, a father who had high highs and low lows um and she's probably felt quite trapped by that at points and there's obviously a, a kickback as well because if you yeah you, you mentioned her brother roman i think she said in interviews there's a, there's a great um special feature on the new uh 4k of this released by studio canal that it's like uh, revisiting this and she said like growing up she was just surrounded by men and boys do you know what i mean is it all, all, all her cousins do you know what i mean you've got yeah you've got Nicholas Cage and like the Schwartzman brothers and stuff like that. It's, it's all this kind of masculine energy. Do you know what I mean? She even says like, I've got an Italian dad, like it's a lot of this testosterone. And it's kind of fascinating that her career is almost like a kickback on that of like, let's make it, do you know what I mean? It's pastel pink. Like you look yeah. at the spine for, for Marie Antoinette. I think the, the, the DVD case itself is like yeah. neon pink and stuff like that. And it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's really fascinating. And it's, uh, yeah. And we'll get into it with this film. Like, I just think it's, it's, it's great, especially coming from a place of privilege, how she, yeah, captures that boredom and kind of like a world that you would imagine she would have no experience of at all, this kind of suburbia. Um, but yeah, before we get, before we get to really diving into this film, James, I'm, I must ask you, obviously you mentioned interviewing Roman there. How many Coppolas have you interviewed? You, you, you're a man about town. So yeah. How, how many have you checked off the list? How many Coppolas? Yeah. Well, Sophia, uh, Nick Cage, um, Jason Schwartzman. Who are some of the outliers I might be forgetting? Um, I, I almost said Wes Anderson, but he's not. He's just—he's <laughs> an honorary. That, I think he's. he's I think in, he's. Yeah, yeah. I, he's I, in I, that I, world. Yeah, I think he he would definitely like Thanksgiving might get a, an honorary invite. I'm, I, I think he was at a party at um, Francis's house when, and that's how he met Jason Schwartzman. Or like was right. like, yeah, yeah. That who's this precocious young man? <laughs> he must be in my next film. And then before we know it, like it seems like him and Roman have got like story by credits just by default yeah. now on all of his films so like spike jones when he was when he was with yes. sophia interviewed spike jones Amazing. um uh i mean that uh, this is a little bit tenuous now but you know he was part of the gang for a while i think francis called him like the future of cinema or something so he yep. got he got the blessing from his yeah i've almost father-in-law i've said it on this podcast that there there's almost no spike jones as we know him uh, without francis ford coppola kind of pushing people i think it was john malkovich he said you must read this script for being john malkovich and like i think francis was offered the script originally went i i, I can't direct this but i know i know a young whippersnapper who can and then yeah. it's kind of like boom we get we get spike jones it'd be amazing if francis had been offered jackass as well <laughs> <laughs> i love the fact that spike also produces and you know is heavily involved with the jackass movies because that uh, maybe that was the thing that was like the straw that broke the camel's back it's like spike 
you know, you're a brilliantly talented movie maker. You've done being John Malkovich and you know, adaptation, all this stuff. Why do the Jackass movies? Mm. You know, please. Oh. Um, uh, and and the, the Coppola's a bit like, yeah, we don't want this dude doing the, who does the Jackass movies in our life anymore. But, but um, he tr- he treats he treats a penis dressed up as a kaiju. <laughs> Like it is like 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 it is high cinema, James. So you've yeah. got you got, so you've got I think there's, I think the there's <laughs> yeah, I think there's something kind of avant garde <laughs> yeah. and and modern art about the Jackass movies. I'm on his side, yeah. <laughs> but um, it was always the thing that sort of looked a bit out of place on his CV, wasn't it? Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, going back to the who the Coppola's, yeah, he was he was when I first interviewed him, he was absolutely part of that crowd then. And Jason, actually, I interviewed Jason. It wasn't even for a film. It was when he was in the band Phantom Planet. Amazing. Um, and um, obviously we chatted about acting and things like that, but it was also a, a, a musical interview because he was drummer, wasn't he, for Phantom Planet? Yeah, he's, 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 I think he's the co-writer of their big hit, California, as many people know. What a song. Have. Yeah, I've, I, I repurposed that when I did a, a mini-series called Schwartzman Summer and just changed it from California to Jason Schwartzman. And it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's the... I think that's the Coplas. I feel... I, I'm concerned I missed out some um, that... I don't think so. so. No, I think that's probably the lot. So what 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 is it you interviewed Sophia Coppola for? Was it a kind of like... Oh, yeah, a number of things. Uh, when she has a new film out, definitely... Um, definitely interviewed her around Marie Antoinette because I did an on I uh, around Marie Antoinette I did an on stage interview with her and this was at a cinema in in Leicester Square in London the View Cinema Leicester Square and um, it was let's say eight o'clock at night and before that it was the same week that Nick's version Nick Cage's version of The Wicker Man came out <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> And that wasn't screened to the press for obvious reasons. So I wanted to see it, and I loved the original Wicker Man. So I paid to go and see the new version of the Wicker Man in the afternoon at the Empire Leicester Square. That ended, and then I walked like 100 metres across Leicester Square to the View Leicester Square, where Sophia was waiting to go on and do this on stage. And I said, I've just seen your cousin in a movie. Uh, the Wicker Man. And uh, I mean, what did I expect her to say? I don't know. It's not like we then immediately bonded and had a great discussion about Nick Cage. Maybe that's what I wanted. Maybe that's, <laughs> what, that's what you would have wanted, right? You know, just to have this great bonding moment discussing Nick Cage's filmography. Uh, that didn't happen. But I'd always remember that on the same day, I did two Coppolas, Nick in The Wicker Man, and then an on stage with Sophia. Amazing. <laughs> Did, were you aware beforehand that that was the case or was it kind of as you were walking to to do the on stage with Sophia you're like oh, yeah shit I've, 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 I've done this weird double bill <laughs> yeah no I, I I I was aware it seemed too neat not to you know not to go through with it I felt like this is kismet or something I have to do this and I do remember talking to Nick Cage I Nick Cage when he had a film out called Wind Talkers mm-hmm. with John Woo the director and he was paired with John Woo and I remember talking to Nick Cage in the interview about I, I can't remember actually whether it was Sophia or Jason but but and John Woo was like who are you talking about? And Nick was like, oh, it's my cousin. And I thought, <laughs> oh my God, this is so cool. It's like, yeah, they're my cousin. You know, I love this family. Um, and yeah, I think Cage has been um, publicizing a few things. I definitely interviewed him around the time of knowing. And um, Sophia, 
Yeah, probably for her uh, movies after um, Mary Antoinette as well. Maybe somewhere I can't remember, but she's she's great. You know, I'm very chilled, and um, I love talking to her about music. You know, the music, the soundtracks that she's worked on, and yeah. uh, have been so important to those movies. Um, and I actually had a bit of a fanboy moment. I did some work <laughs> recently on a documentary called Fire of Love, which was actually Oscar nominated and it's on Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you? not, not yet. No, it's on, it's on, it's so on the good. list. So good. But anyway, the score to Fire of Love is by Nick from the band Air. Mm-hmm. Um, and Air also did the score to Virgin Suicides. And some of it is new music, but some of it is repurposed. And so there's bits from the Virgin Suicide score. Amazing in fire of love and so i did an on-stage interview with the director and the producer of that movie um shane's the producer and, and sarah's the director and uh yeah just had a fanboy bonding moment about how much we loved air and their music and the virgin suicide score and all that kind of thing and actually fire of love has a not dissimilar voiceover and uh, a narrator it's a female narrator an actress called miranda july doing the doing the narration but watching, re-watching The Virgin Suicides and listening to Giovanni Ribisi's mm. narration and then the use of the music by air and then watching Fire of Love, this documentary about two volcano experts from the 70s, but hearing that narration and the music by air in that film, mm-hmm. I watched and I thought, they have to be Virgin Suicides fans. Yes. The people who made this movie are definitely Virgin Suicides fans. I, I I love that now she's swapped out air for Phoenix because I imagine she gets a cheaper rate because it's her, yeah, it's her husband's band. Like, it's a similar vibe. They're French. Yeah, like, it yeah. Works. She loves she loves the hipster French band. That's for sure. <laughs> Amazing. Well, let's talk about the Virgin Suicide. All to understand those five girls who after all these years we can't get out of our minds. This film was made on a budget of $6.1 million. 61, Jesus Christ, if only. (laughs) (laughs) And made a box office return of $10.4 million. It premiered at Cannes on the 19th of May, 1999. James, can you tell us what The Virgin Suicides is all about? Yeah, well, it's based on uh, a novel by Jeffrey Eugenides, um, I may have pronounced his name wrong. Um, and it's about five sisters. Um, the Lisbon sisters, this is in suburban America in the 70s, mid to late 70s. And one of them clearly has mental health issues and, and commits suicide. And it's about how that affects the rest of the family, the aftermath of that. 
um, how the parents react, how the other sisters react, but also how the neighborhood reacts as well, mm. really. And a lot of the film is from the point of view of her male, the, the family's male neighbors. So the boys who are of the same age as, as the Lisbon sisters who live nearby, who go to the same school, and how they kind of talk about it and discuss it and are all really in love with the Lisbon sisters. They have this sort of... Um, air of mystery about them mm. i guess because it's a slightly unusual family on the one hand it's a very normal family because it's suburban and the dad's a teacher and they live sort of a normal life but then the mum clearly has a few issues she's quite strict she's very religious uh the dad obviously understandably after the loss of one daughter starts to behave a little eccentrically so they they kind of morph from being on the face of it quite a regular everyday suburban family to being a bit more peculiar and mm. a bit more unusual and they won't let the the the, the remaining daughters out of the house um, and so yeah a lot of it is seen from the point of view of the boys who live nearby who spy on them through their telescope yeah um, and who are all fascinated by them and there's the, the, as you mentioned earlier there's that great kind of Giovanni Rabisi narration from it you can only it's never revealed who he is of the the kids is he of, of the boys it's kind of like there's do, 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 yeah i think i think um officially it's meant to be uh is it weiner i can't remember there, there there is an official answer to that but it's it's only by reading about it online you don't mm -hmm. actually get to know that from watching the film yeah. um and yeah the 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 voiceover is an adult version of one of the boys looking back and so there is also that feeling of nostalgia about mm -hmm. the film too it is definitely a, a looking back a remembering kind of film um and what i like about that nostalgia is that on the one hand it's oh, you know remember being a 13 14 year old boy and falling in love and listening to the music of the time and everything seems kind of sunny and beautifully lit and so it has that nostalgic glow about it but then at the same time, obviously, it's about this family who have real problems yeah. and there's suicide in it, as the title kind of suggests. So there is a real darkness to it as well. It's not all um, happy, um, retro comfort viewing. It's um, it's dark. But I think it blends the two really well. It's certainly, when I rewatched it for this, it's certainly funnier than I remembered. Yeah. Um, and I think the the way it blends the funny moments with the really sad, tragic moments is incredibly clever and subtle and and and, and expertly done. Well, on this rewatch, I had kind of forgotten how upfront they are that all five sisters are doomed. It's kind of like you you learn that in like maybe like the first twenty yeah. minutes that they're that they're, they're, they're all they're, yeah they're all bound for for for, for an yeah. early grave, and it's like. I so, guess the title kind of tells you that. Yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. It? But you know, <laughs> you thought I don't know. You do see you, the Virgin suicides. You do see Lux. Uh, be yeah, 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 yeah. So like maybe, maybe one one would get away. Uh, but um, there, there's it, it does this really clever thing with that. That like there is these fun moments, and you do see them like enjoying themselves. But then you also just have this like creeping cold hand on the back of your neck that like you know that you you like at any moment you're kind of like yeah. when like a slasher movie in a weird way it's like when are we getting the next 
kill in a way. Do you know what I mean? When yeah. are we getting, and like, what is it going, how is it going to happen? And yeah, I'd, I, cause I'd watched this years ago and kind of like forgotten, like how it kind of the climax of it and was just like, yeah. kind of awestruck. There's this sense, there's this sense that the girls know, obviously they're almost planning what's going to happen, but the boys can never quite get into their heads, can ne- to, into the girls' heads, can never quite get close enough to them to sort of work that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time the film ends and you sort of sat there thinking about it, you go, well, did they plan this all along? Had the girls known about this? Had the girls always sort of agreed to do this? But we're never privy to those yeah. moments, like, to those conversations. So you never quite know. And that, so it's they still retain that air of mystery, which is why we presume there is an adult version of one of these boys looking back on this story. It still confuses him. He's still in the dark about exactly what happened. I think the best moment for me of that mix of funny comedy, uh, but then it kind of goes dark, is there's a a party scene. Mm. So... um, the the girls have been recommended just to mingle more with, yeah. with other people. Yeah, by Danny DeVito. <laughs> by Danny DeVito, he's brilliant. Isn't it? And um, so the parents reluctantly say, okay, we'll invite some local boys round and you can just mingle more. It'll be good for you to do that. And it's very funny because it's all really awkward and it's that classic kind of 13, 14-year-old uh, maybe it's not like that now, but it was when I was a kid. It's awkward, boys and girls not really knowing what to say to each other. They're all in the basement just being really awkward. And then, it's funny. And then one of the daughters, um, it's is it Cassie, Connie? I can't remember what's her name. I've got the names yeah. listed here. Uh, it is Hannah Hall's character. So that is Cecilia. Cecilia, I knew it was a C, right. So then one of the daughters, Cecilia, who is the the one who we first see with mental health problems, she just goes upstairs. She says, I've had enough. I'm going upstairs. And you kind of go, all right. And then you hear this scream. And then it becomes something completely different. It becomes what's happened, why has she done this, and the boys discovering her suicide, the family discovering her suicide, which is awful because it's her throwing herself out of the window and landing on the the, the fence, the iron mm. fence outside, sort of uh, skewered by this fence. I mean, it's hideous. And you just think, wow, 30 seconds ago, this was quite a comedic little party about kids having a party and being really awkward with each other. And just like that, it's flipped mm. into a moment of tragedy. Um, and that that blend, it's not an easy blend to pull off because a lot of the time critics would go, well, this tone is all over the place. You know, is mm-hmm. this one thing? Is this another film? Uh, but actually, The Virgin Suicides blends the two really well. I think because of what you said, I think even in those funny moments, there's still that sense because we have been told that bad stuff is going to happen. So even in the funny moments, the stuff with Trip Fontaine, played by um, Josh, Hartnett. Josh Hartnett, it's funny. You're laughing. There's some good gags. But you still think, yeah, but I'm sure at the beginning of this movie, we were told that all of these girls are going to be dead. Yeah. So you're just waiting for, for the bad shit to happen. Yeah. So like when you have that moment, like when they get invited into the house at the end, where you get that great montage of them playing records to each other over the phone. And then yeah. the boys like, like sneak over, like they get invited over and like, yeah, come on in. I'll, I'll go out to the car. And then we just get a flash to like, the boy's imagination of what it could be and they're heartbreaking like driving in the car during the day and then we kind of get the 
the like one, two, three, four punch of that all four sisters have just kind of yeah. had. Like that stuff, those those dreams the boys have, if you like, imagining taking the girls out, taking the girls away, getting them yeah. in the car and having the breeze blowing through their hair and the sunshine. I think those moments, I mean, actually it does kind of happen in the film because there's a moment where a load of boys take them out to the homecoming dance. Mm. And those moments where the girls escape from their house, they are allowed to go outside, to mingle, to get in a car and drive away. I think those brief moments of freedom that they have, whether they're real like at the homecoming dance or whether the boys are imagining them, hoping that they're going to happen. They're really powerful. Um, and that idea of the girls being trapped in this home, actually, even when they're not officially trapped, when in theory they are still allowed to go out, it's still a really claustrophobic house. Mm. It's still quite um, a sterile house, isn't it? So there's a lovely mix, a lovely clash really between the girls at home being bored, feeling trapped, and those brief moments when they're allowed space, when they're allowed to get out. I love that shot of um, Lux, Kiss and Dunst, after she's made out a trip, uh, Fontaine, and she wakes up on the uh, on the football pitch the next morning. And it's like, it's just her on her own, surrounded by space. And it's not a particularly great moment because her boyfriend's run off. But at the same time, she just feels like someone who finally can be outside and in some space yeah. rather than trapped in this suburban house. Yeah, but yeah, even that, even even that moment like has has some darkness to it because we hear this like, and there's there's that really interesting use that we get the adult trip Fontaine, which is yeah. like, again, it's like a kind of like curveball out of nowhere because we don't get that in with any other character and that's no and it's sort of shot in a way it's like you know the office or something isn't it it's like a, a documentary yeah, it reminded like me of um true detective you know when we're getting like the the interviews with matthew mcconaughey's character like across the table and then there's almost like the twist in that as well that he's in some yeah. kind of like facility do you know what I mean? And yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh. He's clearly um, has addiction issues or yes. something and has to go off to, uh, has to go off to, to have his six o'clock meeting. Um, so there's that suggestion and he, and trip, the adult trip kind of explains this, that, you know, he's never been that in love since mm. it was, he's but, never, he's felt that kind of emotion since when he handles, high school. He handles it terribly because, I kind of read into this. It's it's, it's, lit, it's it's written on Wikipedia, so it's not the trusted source. But it says that they have sex that night. So like it is like that kind of what we get in loads of teen movies. Supposed to be that like great night and like the way that it's shot with the kind of like the blue hue over that that like when she wakes up in the morning. Just and of all things, it reminded me of is when, and you, you, you'll know this well as a Keanu Reeves fan, is in Bill and Ted's bogus journey when they are dead and, like, uh, everything has kind of got that blue hue. And it, it has, like, a kind of very haunting element to it. As, as much as she is free, it's like this thing of, like, it's all going to close in because we know what's going to happen. Like, we, we, we've yeah. established who her parents are. that, and, and the way that's handled when she goes back, like, I think a lesser filmmaker we would have had this like screaming match and stuff like that. Yes. All we get is just that shot of her kind of like a forceful arm, like kind of pulling her into the house and like, what, like we, we get a shout, but it's not like it's far away and it's kind of distant. And I, 
I, I love those details. That, that yeah, it does. does. It, it, it avoids a lot of those big confrontational scenes that could, I'm sure they could be powerful. They're all great actors, you know, seeing James Woods do shouting is always fun. <laughs> um, but not that his character in this is so much of a shouter, really. It's more Kathleen Turner's mother character. But at the same time, I'm glad they didn't do that. I know exactly that scene you're talking about, and I had exactly those feelings watching it again after a few years of not seeing it. I couldn't remember exactly what happened. And I was sat there going, I hope we don't now cut in to the interior of the house and see Kathleen Turner have this long slanging match with mm. Kister Dunst. I hope it just ends there. And it does. They just lit Sophia Coppola just leaves it to your imagination. Um, and again, it sort of goes back to what I said about the boys still not knowing so much. It was all that shot of of Lux arriving home after her night of passion on the football field and her parents have been wondering where she is and she gets dragged inside the house it's almost like it you're watching it from the house over the road mm. you're one of the boys spying on her obsessed with her and then as soon as she goes inside the house you don't know what happens anymore yeah um and they're really constructing the whole story just from what they know but they don't know everything because they couldn't have witnessed everything the narrative of the film is almost like told through like hearsay and whispers yeah, and and that's what I love about it. and what what I, what I noticed and it might have been because I, I I watched I watched this quite recently, but the way she portrays suburbia at the beginning and the kind of like I don't know the oddness of it and we kind of see like all of the 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 the, the weird characters of the neighbourhood and all the people gossiping and stuff like that. It really reminded me of Edward Scissorhands and the way that Tim Burton treats suburbia as this like. Yeah. That's the weird place it is. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Everybody's in on everyone's business. Do you know what I mean? And I imagine it's something that would have been fascinating for Sophia Coppola being, do you know what I mean? She grew up on a on an estate in Napa. <laughs> so like, it's probably, she's got the ultimate outsider's perspective of like these rows of houses and everybody being on top of each other and knowing everybody's business. And I guess yeah. she probably has a different, almost like pumping in a bit of, the celebrity thing as well. Like the, the, a lot of people know about her, her business from a young age and stuff like that. And I imagine a lot of her life would have been told through hearsay and whispers and stuff like that. And as you said, like I, with I think it's often good when a filmmaker tells a story that they are outside of, um, because they see it from a different perspective. Now that's not to say that if you are totally involved in a story, if it is your story you're telling, that's also incredibly powerful. But sometimes it's like when you get, let's say, um, uh, uh, a filmmaker who isn't from the States going to the States and making an American movie, maybe with some real social impact to it. And you get a sort of outsider's view. And there's something really interesting, I think. It's like maybe like when Ang Lee made Brokeback Mountain. You mm -hmm. know, <clears throat> This is not the obvious guy to make that movie. But he just because he comes from a very different culture, um, it brings something to yeah. it. I, and I, I think her her outsider status as <clears throat> rich, privileged daughter of an Oscar-winning filmmaker making a film about suburbia also brings a new slant to things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I must ask you, James. You you said you can remember the first time you saw this film. Well, who who were you at that point? Like, who was who was James King in 1999 or 2000 when you saw this film? 
Yeah, it, I'm pretty sure it was London Film Festival. Uh, you know, I apologise if I'm wrong, but it was definitely a, a Leicester Square screening in London. And there, w- there wasn't a huge amount of hype, I don't feel, about this film. I'd probably heard a bit about it, but because of who directed it. But it wasn't like the, uh, you know, the film that everyone's talking about. Um, but I was hugely moved by it. And also I was fascinated at that time with... Kirsten Dunst and Josh Hartnett, who were two of the biggest teen stars of that era mm-hmm. and who I'd seen in other things and um, who were in you know, iconic teen movies around that time and were really seen as sort of the future of, yeah. of Hollywood at that time. Um, so it was great to see them in something that, that I felt wasn't like, as much as I love the faculty or get over it or whatever, you know, there are their kind of teen movies this actually was something very different tonally, had a much different mood to it. Um, And yeah, I just remember coming out of the, of the screening and being almost hypnotized by it. I think it has a hypnotic quality. The music certainly helps with that, but there's also a kind of slowness about it that definitely didn't feel cool at that point. It certainly wasn't like the fashion to be like that. But there's a slowness about it. You hear like ticking clocks in the background quite a lot and just that sort of hum of traffic in the background. It almost has like a a heartbeat to it, this film of just the slowness of suburbia. Just life slowly mm-hmm. ticking along. It's what sent the girls, you know, uh, to their grave, unfortunately, because they just couldn't take it yeah. anymore. Um uh, and I definitely remember being yeah, mesmerized, hypnotized by that, the pace of the film and, and the way that the music lulls you into, into that world. And I think it's a really interesting way of using, like, this could have been, like, Needle Drop Central of just 70s yeah. hits. And it's got, it's got a few, like, 70s numbers, like, dropped in, stuff like that throughout it. They're all part of the story, though, aren't they? Yeah, but the, the, the use of the air soundtrack and i think there's there's some other like kind of more, like 90s and like 80s needle drops i think adds to that element of it being a memory do you know what i mean like you almost oh yeah was that song out at that time you kind of remember you you don't really yeah. remember what was playing at that time and but like some somehow like music gets attached to it maybe it was I don't know, something that came out afterwards, but it was a time when you were processing what happened then and yeah. you kind of like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you attach it to it. And I think the 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 use of the, the, air, the air music is fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I'd never heard a soundtrack like that before. I don't think, I mean, there must have been other soundtracks you could compare it to, I guess. But even so, that you have this very hip French electronic duo doing a whole soundtrack mm-hmm. and i knew them from sexy boy um and you know that moon safari album which is amazing uh, i think actually one of the tracks from moon safari is used on the on the virgin suicides but um so they were very cool at that point so when i said i didn't i hadn't heard a lot about the film i'd probably heard more about the soundtrack yeah. actually <laughs> than i had about the actual film and the song playground love you know i was working at radio one at the time we definitely played that um so the soundtrack was a cool thing and it was an ex- it was a different thing and again c- comparing it to other teen movies of the time which were all about big pop soundtracks mm-hmm. this had something much more laid back and something much more 
eerie, really. I, I think Playground Love is an incredibly eerie song. It's a romantic song, but it's yeah. really eerie. The it's whole, really bleak, beautifully bleak. Yeah, the whole soundtrack's kind of got like a, a creepiness to it, and like yeah, and actually, even the even the needle drops, even when they use the retro songs, I love the way they use Strange Magic, the Electric Light Orchestra mm. song. Um, that whole homecoming dance uh, part of the film, it is almost magical, actually, because they're out, they're out, they're allowed to go out, they're finally allowed to be themselves and to have experiences of regular teenagers um and the way it's shot it's almost like some ma- well it would be it would be a magical moment for those girls a magical moment for the boys mm-hmm. as well it's one of those things that yeah as adults we look back on and go wow do you remember that magical night when i was 14 and we went to that party and you know i snogged that person and it was all beautiful and amazing and it really captures that magic so well but but strange magic is a song that's also kind of ethereal. Mm-hmm. So it, even the old songs have that that ethereal, dreamy quality about them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that aspect of it. There's, there's so much I love about that. And I know that, like, Sophia Coppola, like, when talking about the film, obviously as a, as a first-time director, she, she said, like, the, the people involved, so the cinematographer especially, um, what was his name? Edward Latchman was, like... Right. So, she said was so helpful to kind of help her with her vision and kind of like took her under under his wing because yeah as much as she's come from the family she's come from like this this this, this was a new thing and I, and I guess a question i wanted to to talk about with that is like how much of this I mean, obviously like nepotism is a big thing we like people like to talk about it's like and I think it's something we can't shy away with this. It's like, does this film get made? Because, like, it's, it's kind of crazy, like, the, the story behind this with, what, Sophia being given the book by Thurston Moore, of all people, from <laughs> from Sonic Youth. But, like, yeah, read this. Like, that. okay, that, that doesn't happen to, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like normally, oh, my mate Dave lent me a book or something. Like, just, just Thurston Moore. And then the film was going to get made by a studio, a script had been written and like Sophia was kind of heartbroken having read the book and was like, I'm just going to write a, I'm just going to try and write a script. And like, it's kind of, I think she said, I can't, I, I, I thought I'd do a few pages before I knew it. I'd literally done the whole movie. And she, she, she remembered her dad talking about how you adapt a novel and I think he's famously like the Godfather notebook's been talked about how he kind of just took the novel itself and kind of, yeah, like stuck the pages down, highlighted stuff. We'll use that. We'll use that. And then kind of turned it into a script and stuff like that. But yeah, how much of this, how much of this happens because, because of Francis? Like, uh, do, Oh, do I you think a lot of it, he produced it, right? It's <laughs> yeah. an American Zotrope production. And I, there are people Clearly, he you've worked with Kathleen Turner before, and people like James Woods and Danny. Well, he's worked with Danny DeVito before, you know. So you you get the sense, of course, that his fingerprints are all over it. Gordon Willis, I think, works on it as well, you know. So so there are um, you can't shy away from the fact mm-hmm. that he had a huge influence on it. Yeah. Um, and again, going back to how I remember the movie. Maybe that was another thing I thought. Maybe I thought about the Air soundtrack. Maybe I thought about The Godfather Part 3. And maybe I also thought, well, this will be rubbish. It's just Francis giving his daughter a gig. You know, she only got this because of who she is. So maybe I also went in with those um, 
thoughts as well. I certainly didn't come out with those thoughts, but I probably went into the movie thinking that, that this was just nepotism. Um, But, you know, we cannot avoid that. It's, it's, I'm sure it was, if she was, you know, Sophia Jones (laughs) with no movie connections whatsoever, Sophia Smith, then she wouldn't have got to make the movie. Uh, But she proved herself. That's the key thing. There are lots of people who've got to places because of nepotism and they've just been rubbish. And you go, well, they're rubbish, but they're doing really well because of their surname. Mm -hmm. But Sophia is doing really well now because she's a really good filmmaker. And maybe the, the initial leg up was because of her surname. But... She certainly proved herself over and over again. I I don't think we can sort of now say, oh, well, she's only where she is because she's a Coppola. Um, Arguably, currently, she's the most successful Coppola filmmaker out there. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry, Francis, but, you know, his track record of late has been patchy, but Sophia keeps coming out with stuff and and, uh, not blockbusters. That's not really her style, but at the same time, consistently mm-hmm. uh good reviews and consistently um critically acclaimed well it's it's great to see uh, it's, it's, i think it's it's easy for people to forget that she said in an interview that she was like only in her late 20s when she made this movie so like she kind of was like i'm not that far away from these girls really like that's not a distant memory for me it's it's quite fresh and it's it's really great to kind of see some of the footage and like stills of her on set and the way she ran the set, which is something like anyone I've ever heard speak about her sets are just kind of really serene, really, really quiet and really like, like, yeah, the, 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 the girls in this, I think the family basically ate meals together. Like they kind of got to know each other and the child labor laws that like the, the, they were, they were kind of like, no, we, we want to, we like, do you know what I mean? We want to work more. Like this is like a 30 day yeah. shoot or something like that. And obviously, yeah, you've got Kirsten Dunst and like Hannah Hall and stuff like that who are like, no, but we're having so much fun making this movie. We've almost that, become that a family. Actually sound, that actually sounds a bit like The Outsiders again. Yes. Because there was definitely that atmosphere uh, with Francis cooking on the set of The Outsiders and just that that him wanting to, to um, create this mood on set of, of, yeah, I mean, I know some of the characters in that movie in The Outsiders he sort of separated from others to 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 um keep the rivalries going even when the camera wasn't rolling but at the same time there was that feeling of we're all in this together and we'll just muck in and we'll get it done because that was a low budget movie yeah. as well um and i'm sure that's something that sophia had seen her dad do before and 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 had seen how it worked uh, and it does work and the fact that she still works with Kissed and Dunst um, mm-hmm. shows that obviously there's a trust there and there's a mutual respect there. And she she said, like Kissed and Dunst said about this film, that like she the the thing that really drew her to it initially was um, she said it was a, a script that really like spoke to who she was at that time. Like you, you mentioned earlier about that. The, the the tea like her being like a teen star she said all of the stuff she had done was kind of like it's not really the emotions i'm going through right now and it's kind of like because i know that scarlett johansson passed on this uh, for lux because she was like this is a bit too much like yeah. so like 
So I can only imagine for Kiss and Dunce, like kind of having maybe not like suicidal feelings and stuff like that, but at least processing and being at that that time of your life of like, oh, maybe I'm like interested in like seeing boys now and stuff like that and kind of having my first kiss and stuff like that. Like it must be like even more like all encompassing and just such a, I think all of, all of the sisters give like these amazing performances and kind of like they move in this ethereal, like pack way. And like, it's just, it's just mesmerizing to watch. Like lounge around Mm. on top of each other. Yeah, it's like a Renaissance painting. (laughs) And uh, you hear quite a lot about male directors and the way that they direct women who they're clearly in love with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And often they actually end up, you know, having a relationship with them. I I remember reading about um, Howard Deutsch when he directed Some Kind of Wonderful, you know, and ended up marrying um, the lead actress. Um, and you can kind of tell from watching the film that he was clearly in love with her. Um, and But the interesting thing about this is I think Sofia Coppola almost has that element as the as the eye on, on those girls is almost like, I am in love with these girls, mm-hmm. especially Lux. Yeah. But, but of course, everyone was in love with Lux. The sisters were probably, you know, loved her, looked up to her because she was the most charismatic of all of them. The boys obviously were totally in love with her. Uh, even older guys, you know, there's that lovely scene where it's a uh, guy sharpening his, <laughs> his sharpening some sharpening <laughs> his knife, yeah, and he's just like lusting after her. This is this kind of Lolita type figure. You know, so Lux obviously is a, was a character that everyone was in love with in various ways. Yeah. Um and it seems like Sophia was as well the way that she shot Kirsten Dunst in that movie is is almost like a director filming someone that they're going to end up marrying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, and it, it, you know, she hasn't done that. I, she's, when she made the beguiled with with Kirsten Dunst, it's not like she shot her that way. Then it was very much for this movie, and it fits in with what this movie is about. But it's a really interesting dynamic, considering that it's uh, a, you know a, a straight female director, um, the way that she shoots her, and she makes her look. I can't imagine Scarlett Johansson doing it because the way that she makes Kirsten Dunst look is is kind of with the long blonde hair. It's it's almost uh, nymph like, fairy like. There's something, um, well, like we said, magical about her. And, and I don't think Scarlett Johansson quite has that quality. Um, whereas Kirsten Dunst is a more kind of floaty, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. They, Sophia said there's, there was something about Kirsten Dunst's eyes. Like there's in the way that like she like her look, she looks optimistic and like, do you know what I mean? She looks like your, your, your like blonde hair and stuff like that. But it's something about those eyes. And you see, like we see it a lot in this film because there are kind of Mm. whole sequences where it's just her like front and center. And there's this kind of like this despair and like loneliness. And I think like she, she manages of all of the all all of the actresses who play the sisters to capture that like look of basically shit I'm trapped here like yeah and it's just kind of but she's playful as well isn't she yeah. like the way that she leads the boys in in the bit in the big you know finale the big um shock moment towards the end of the film she 
she also has that, talking about the eyes, that glint in the eyes. She's sort of the most cheeky of all of them mm -hmm. and the flirt, most flirtatious of all of them. Um, and it's it's brilliant because we're all meant to think, we're all meant to be in love with her. Not, mm -hmm. you know, it's, I'm not, it's, it's, it's nothing wrong with that. It's like she's charismatic. She's a charismatic character. And the boys were in love with her and we're meant to understand why they're in love with her. And I think you totally do because she's this kind of irresistible character. 100%. Um, I must ask you, James, somebody who's obviously studied teen movies, how do you think this film acts as a, as a teen movie and like how it, how it subverts the tropes as well? Because there is a... There is a kind of yeah. a, a section within the middle of this where it does kind of become an out-and-out -out teen movie, especially when yeah. we kind of get to that stuff of, like, I think it's when Trip Fontaine's introduced, it kind of, the film morphs a bit and, like, kind of takes us down a different avenue only to kind of, like, have everything kind of crashing back down as we get yeah. to the climax. Yeah, uh, it's and it's it's sending... It's certainly sending that up a little bit, isn't it? The idea of the cool guy in school. And um, I'm I'm sure I remember at the time Josh Hartnett saying, in the same way that Kirsten Dunst said, a lot of teen movie scripts were nonsense, this one spoke to me. I remember Josh Hartnett saying, this one was so much more relevant to me. It was because I was being pitched around Hollywood as the cool new hunk. I was being pitched as the Trip Fontaine, mm. but actually I wanted to show people I had something more than that. Mm. And of course, we we do get that from Trip Fontaine. These things don't work out quite as easily as they would in a more conventional teen movie. Um, so I think he's he's sending himself up a little bit very early in his career. Yeah, but I do think there's a little bit of tongue in cheek there from this Hollywood hunk who people had posters of up, up on their wall saying actually, I'm going to send up that whole idea of being a hunk yeah, um, and show you that there are more layers to, to that kind of a character. He said in an interview that he kind of had that Trip Fontaine moment, and I guess it was that kind of move into Hollywood because he said, like, at school, he very much was, like, a bit of an outsider because he was like a theatre kid and stuff like that. Like, yeah. That was, he wasn't, he wasn't the jock or anything like that. But like when he kind of moved into Hollywood, he said he kind of became like a poster child and like up on people's walls. It's like... Oh, he's had that moment that he's the hot shit, and it's like, uh, and I don't know, I know, I'm, 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 I'm actually like quite a goofy guy and stuff like that, and you kind of like, yeah. he really embodies that with Trip Fontaine, who is like, yeah, he's cool and slick, but he's also, I don't know, he's a bit of, a, bit of an idiot. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and at first we think he is just cool and slick, um, but then the more you learn about him, and then of course with the 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 flash forwards to how he is in the present day you of course you learn that there's actually a lot more going on or was a lot more going on with this guy and and um i'm always fascinated by how teen movie characters would be when they're adults mm. uh that's not to say i want sequels where we actually find out <laughs> um, but i like to i like it to be left up in the air Mm -hmm. um and i think the virgin suicides although you know we do find out what happened to trip fontaine it's not you know it's only a little bit um and that's like what i think is really appealing about it you go wow god 25 years ago we'd never have thought that that guy would end up in this situation um because teen movies tend to end optimistically mm. and the suggestion that everybody lives happily ever after well the Virgin Suicides really punctures that idea 
for starters, the five lead girls certainly don't live happily ever after. But even the the hunk, the guy who you think had it all, who made life look easy, even he doesn't live happily ever after, yeah. really. So um, going back to those sort of tropes of classic teen movies, well, not so much classic teen movies, but mainstream teen movies, it does uh, it doesn't play the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe going back to The Outsiders again, it's a very different film, but, you know, it's again, that was another teen movie that had all the elements it had the stars it had the eye candy it had the hot talent of the moment but it did different things with them yeah yeah and like that yeah like i said it kind of does the that weird morph into like yeah it's taking the girls to the prom like a movie and uh, it's like i was kind of like take a bath it's like I'd I'd forgotten that Hayden Christensen was in this. I was like, oh yeah, here he is, and I kind of I kind of love the young cast in this. Like, I've got yeah. to give a a massive kind of shout out to to Robert Schwartzman as Paul Baldino. This he's kind brilliant. of he's 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 amazing. He he has a he has a moment between him and Kathleen Turner that I just don't know how to read. When she he, he asks about the punch, she says, "What's in this?" And she's like, "Pineapple." Yeah. He's like. I love pineapple and kind of like looks at her for like a little bit too long. It's like, is there like, is there like a frisson of like sexual tension here? Like what is, what is his end game here? Well, I think because his parents or his dad is like a gangster and that's what we learn. And so I think he's, that's all he kind of knows. (laughs) He just knows how to be that Italian stallion. And even though he's way too young to be doing it, I guess he's meant to be like 14 or something. (laughs) He's playing that game, isn't he? He's playing that role. Um, But he's, yeah, he's fantastic in it. And even like the, um, I can't remember whether that's him or is it the exchange kid who throws himself off the roof? (laughs) It's the exchange kid, yeah. Who who just walks down the the street, like struts like that. And going back to that first screening, watching it, I definitely remember everyone really laughing at that moment yeah see this kid like strutting down the road thinking he's it and you do think that you know at 13 or 14 you're not an adult but you're getting ideas of how to be one you're copying things from actual adults you think well i've seen adults look cool because they wear sunglasses the whole time (laughs) i've seen adults look cool because they kind of have that walk like john travolta in saturday night fever and you start to try on those little things and try them out and you look ridiculous because you're still ultimately a 13 year old kid but you just give it a little go and i think that's exactly what (laughs) that scene with kathleen turner is about it's about a boy trying out maybe his dad's method but you know an adult's method of just being a bit uh, flirty and like hey ladies um and of course well for a start he's trying it with the wrong person he's trying it with a very religious strict mother uh but also it just looks silly but it's sweet isn't it you know it's sweet yeah but what i think another moment i have to mention of this film because i just i think it really captures something i think that is universal and like what is amazing is obviously sophia coppola probably i don't know she probably does have great insights into the minds of teenage boys having like grown up with with a handful of them is that moment when that young that young guy's invited round for dinner near the beginning. Yeah. And we get that sequence of him like going to use the toilet and him kind of like snooping around the bedroom and the bathroom. And it's like 
I would be lying if I said like I haven't I haven't done that in someone's house. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of just like that fascination as a teenager. Not even like a girl I fancy, just like being around, I don't know, like one of my mum's friends' houses and just kind of like what is the do you know what I mean? How do other people live? It just captures yeah. it just captures that. And I think like it, it it's, yeah. it's it's how other people live and it's also how boys think about girls. Yes. Now I'm not I mean I don't have connections with with kind of 13 or 14 year olds now i don't know if it's different now Mm -hmm. but and i was also you know my era isn't the era from the virgin suicides it's later but at the same time i recognize in those moments the awkwardness of boys around girls and girls around boys i don't know if it's still like that i suspect it probably is but it certainly was in my time and that and it is a fascination and all the boys have it, not just that boy who goes round on his own for dinner, but all the local boys. They're fascinated by these girls. I think they talk about the something like the imp- they're fascinated by the imprisonment of being a girl, mm. which is an amazing line. You know, what it means to be a girl, what 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 goes on when you are a 13, 14, 15 year old girl. They're fascinated by it. Of course, that kid who goes around for the dinner and then goes up to the bathroom and explores the bathroom opens up the cupboard and sees like multiple packets of of tampons, you know, and he doesn't say anything. It's not a big moment in the film, but I do think it's a moment in the film where he just goes, you can just imagine him thinking, this is so alien to me. I don't even understand what these things are or what, you know, what they do. It's a big thing for girls that means zero to me. Mm And that difference between the, the the boys and the girls in it, it's, it captures it so well. And so, it, I mean, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant film about being a teenage girl made by a woman. That's a great thing to have. But it's also a great film about being a teenage boy. Yeah. And the second time, sorry, not the second time, the recent time I watched it again, I'd sort, I picked up on that more, I think. I think I always thought of it as a, a, a film about being a teenage girl, which it partly is but it's also really a film about being a teenage boy. Yeah. And the, that is very heavily based on the book. I have read the book and it, they are very similar and to the point of exact lines from the book being in the movie. So um, you get the sense that sort of the really good things about being a young girl, maybe Sophia injected into the story, but Jeffrey, the, uh, the author of the novel, could obviously really relate with being a teenage boy. Well, I, I, think, I think the line that kind of like, sums up this film and it is is literally in the first five minutes is when the doctor says to uh cecilia like why have what why why did you try to commit suicide like you don't know what it is like to 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 feel real pain yet and she answers obviously doctor you've never been a 13 year old girl and it's kind of like that is the mission statement of the movie right there right it's kind of like and it's almost like a, I don't know, like a, a call to arms to to cinema at the time as well, because Sophia Coppola kind of said, like, artful films about teenage boys had been made and for teenage boys, but nobody had made that for teenage girls. And she almost like felt like a need to do that. And it's kind of like, yeah. and it's like she's saying to the audience, like, you don't... Do you know what I mean? And like, I think that's that's another that's another argument against the nepotism. Not denying that there was nepotism there, I'm sure there was. But again, what she has achieved, Sophia Coppola, just by being a female filmmaker in Hollywood, 
and having success with her movies and critical acclaim with her movies, that really did change things. And she opened the door for lots of other people. Um, and I don't care whether her dad was Francis Ford Coppola or Joe Bloggs. She did that. Yeah. And that made a difference. I, I, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to name names here, but like, I'm sure unlike other like <laughs> offspring of famous directors, <laughs> she could, I'm sure if she said, she said to Paramount, Oh, I've got I've got like a modern treatment on like the Godfather, like what would like do you know what I mean? Like the kind of offspring of that and like told through a female lens and like doing like a, a, a do you know what I mean? Like I don't know, call it like the Godfather afterlife or something like that. And uh like Godmother. She, <laughs> yeah, the godmother, yeah, yeah. Godchildren. Yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> But like she, like do you know what I mean? She she could do that, but she's very much carved out a niche for herself of like, yeah, this is what I do. This is yeah, this is what I do. And I, and as we said like earlier on in the conversation about like how they grew up, I'm sure if you grew up in in a bakery, that kind of the 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 flour and the yeast kind of get seeps into your skin, and like if it's a family business, before you know it, you're kneading dough. And you're, you're, you're baking bread and you're taking over the mantle of your parents. And that's not seen as a dirty thing. Yet, if you grew up on film sets and that's kind of all you know, and you decide to, to yeah, to go into that world that you're kind of, I don't know, a, a social... This is not me kind of saying all nepotism is good. I'm saying, like, sometimes it's, it's inevitable. Like, do you know what I mean? For some people, yeah. it, it is inevitable because of the kind of the upbringing they had like so yeah. and i think that that what's interesting is that roman is is obviously in the film world and makes films but but it's it's in a slightly different way um and uh it's not always as as director or rarely as actual director he's more involved in Story. a slightly less kind of uh conspicuous way i guess and you know that again that shows it's not someone doing it for the spotlight it's not someone doing it for the glory he's obviously doing it because he's fascinated by the process of filmmaking yes um and uh, if he wanted to do it for the spotlight he could he could i'm sure yeah uh, but but never went down that route well yeah he's 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 a, he's a really kind of um i i i interviewed someone who uh, was in a com- in, in like a string of commercials that he he directed and it's like, could you know what I mean? Like, yeah, if he if he wanted the if he wanted the name and recognition, could probably do that. But like, yeah, he's. It seems like he's happy kicking about with wedge, spitballing ideas, and like ends up with a story credit for a movie. Then he is kind of, yeah. Then 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 he is kind of directing his own stuff. He's he's had two cracks yeah. at the whip, like and uh, yeah, that's a varying successes. But uh, yeah, he, he's 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 doing his own thing. Well. um, yeah, this feels like a kind of a nice natural end to our conversation on on the virgin suicides. Um, James, is there is there anything else in the film that you'd like to highlight actually before we kind of move on and talk about some uh, connections within the film? I think it's it's really lasted well, and there's a new uh, there's a new Blu-ray of it coming out. The Blu-ray, if I'm correct, the Criterion version was just in America, mm-hmm. um, and there's now it's not Criterion one, but there's a, a Studio Canal a new 4K. Yeah. Stu- 
there you go studio canal version coming out it's out in the now okay oh even better yeah. um and uh but what that says to me is that the, the legacy of the film has lasted yeah that there's still an interest in it yeah I... and it wasn't necessarily the biggest hit when it came out you you know you gave the figures when it came out it wasn't a smash hit and not everybody liked it but i do think its reputation has has grown and it's still very much out there and people like us discussing it now we're sort of finding how actually impactful it's been since it came out 24 years ago um that actually it did do some new things and open some new doors well i i think in the way that like rumblefish and the outsiders for a generation of young boys like i know that ethan hawk like said in a said in a podcast that like even till today he signs off like his cards to his daughter with stay gold and he he showed Maya Hawke that film and she went oh this is your whole personality <laughs> do you know, like do you know what I mean like um th- this for i imagine many a teenage girl and boy kind of maybe more so teenage girls because of the kind of yep. the subject matter and i imagine a lot of teenage boys would kind of sniff at this film and think oh like, do you know what I mean it's, it's it's all summer dresses and kind of like uh, what what it is to yeah be it's a, a girl. bit dreamy and willowy yeah yeah it's but, not porkies is it yeah exactly but it's it's, it's it, but it, it like I think I've I don't know I've got I've got a young son and I think when he when he when he comes of a certain age I'll be like you can have your you can have your American pies, but also have 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 a virgin suicides as well. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And um, I also know people who are just put off by the title. Yes, and and actually, people who've seen it as well. And it is you know, it's not everyone's thing. Some people want a teen movie to be clueless. Uh, God, yeah, I'm one of them. I'm more than happy to watch clueless. But um, so th- there are some people who go, well, look, when I watch a teen film and I love a teen film, I want it to be clueless, 10 things I hate about you, um, and a, a brighter, something brighter, something a bit more optimistic, maybe. Well, um, and this is this is a different kind of teen film. So it's not everybody's thing. Um, but of course, the, you know, I'm happy for them, more than happy for them both to coexist. I wouldn't want teen films to only be one style. Yeah. Um, but I do know people who think, oh, this is a bit maudlin. Yeah, and I, I, I saw one of the criticisms towards this film was that it it doesn't treat the subject matter with the kind of reverence that it deserves. So I guess it kind of like, it falls but into I, this weird place, right? Because yeah. it does, I think, it does so have fun. I think that makes it more interesting. Yes. A, I, I, I mean, it's, it's hardly treating it lightly for starters, so I can't completely agree with yeah. that statement. But also the way that it does treat it, I think that makes it more interesting. It's not wallowing. It's not overplaying it. It's, I think it's much more powerful because it's suggestive rather than being mm-hmm. um, really overdone. Yes, that, that's, that's a perfect place to end it, James. But before I let you go, we look for Copa connections within these films. Is there anyone who yeah. is, is, is in this film, either in front of behind the camera, who worked with the Coppolas elsewhere? Can, is anyone anyone oh, spring man. to mind? Well, Kathleen Turner and um, Peggy Sue got married. Yes. Um, I said at the start, Danny DeVito, and I'm trying to think why I said that. I mean, he must have done, right? The Danny Rainmaker. DeVito. The Rainmaker, there we go, which was 
around the same time, I think, wasn't it? Not too, not too far off. 96, so yeah, three years before. Uh, so. Was it Was it three years earlier? Okay. Um, so there we go. I mean, that you just you know, you just get the sense that Danny DeVito and Francois Coppola, of course they've worked together. Yeah, you know, but... they're very much the same era. Aren't yeah, they? yeah, yeah. Um, um, and uh, it's definitely some of the people behind the camera because like the bridge, because it's an American Zoto production, you know, yeah. obviously. Fred are, Roos. These, yeah, Fred Roos. Yeah, exactly. There. Yeah. Um, and are there any others? Well, there's Kirsten Dunst. Is obviously Marie Antoinette in Marie Antoinette. Oh yeah, other other and, Sophia and, Coppola movies. And, she makes a little appearance in in the Bling Ring as well, playing herself. Yes, and she's um, in the Beguiled as well, as we mentioned yeah. earlier. And a, a fun little connection: she is in the Woody <laughs> Allen short Oedipus Rex. Oh yes, that is a part of the New York Stories of uh, course. anthology. Yeah, yeah. Um, which but has Francis's one is quite bad in that. Yes, in that, uh, trilogy. Co- Woody's one is quite good. Co-written by Sophia Coppola. <laughs> oh dear, yes. But that, you know that was her. I mean, God, she must have been re- again. Yeah, like, a teenage 15, girl. 15, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, yeah, yeah. Um, so we have Leslie Heyman, who plays Therese Lisbon, was a set dresser on Lick the Star. So <laughs> okay, Lick the so, Star is good, by the way. I watched it on YouTube, so it's available if you've never seen it. Well, you can certainly see a lot of the elements of Virgin Suicide. In it's, there. it's 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 actually included on the. Uh, Amazing. Studio Canal release of Virgin right. Suicides. Yeah, it's a it's it's a really it's it's a really great release. Uh, I was lucky enough to like be sent a copy from them, and it looks it's a new restoration and looks beautiful. Like it looks yeah. it looks stunning. Um, one last one. Uh, Giovanni Rabisi is the uh, narrator oh, yeah. in this film. Was in Lost in Translation and is Kip Rains in Gone in sixty seconds alongside Nicolas Cage. Of course. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> so, James, let's rate this film. And the way that we do that on this podcast is we talk about what would be the perfect wine pairing for this film. What would you, what, what, what kind of wine would you suggest pairs well with Virgin Suicides? Um, well, I, I think you'd need something not too mature and as, as it is about being young, youthful, and your teenage years, you'd need something maybe quite um fruity and sparkling i'm tempted to say the uh the fruit punch that they actually drink in the movie amazing <laughs> amazing i think uh, i don't think even the coppola vineyards has anything like that amazing yeah i i, I think i i think what, what would be perfect for this film is a drink that is really famous in south africa and uh is a kind of cheat if you ever have a bad wine is you, you mix red wine with coca-cola because I think this film right. kind of has the darkness of a red wine, but then also has the sweetness of a Coca Cola, and it very much is the is the drink of of teenagers. It's kind of like a, an entry level drink before you start properly boozing. So, how much are we paying for this wine, James? Is it top shelf, <laughs> middle shelf, or bottom shelf? AK is the film any good? Um, I think top shelf would be presumably uh, expensive. Would be maybe you know Marie Antoinette. That's a bit more sort of of a of a rich, luxurious kind of drink. But I think at this stage, Sophia's very much middle shelf. Okay, okay, we'll t- we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll take you on that. We'll take you on that, James. Two final questions for you, James, before I let you go. The first of which being, you've answered this question before, but I, I, I'm interested to see if your question, if your answer has changed. 
and it is which Coppola family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the entire filmographies of the rest of the family. <laughs> I am a huge, so it's like my dream to write a book about her movies and they're out there into the world. So, uh, I, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry to Nick and I'm really sorry to Jason and Carmine and all the others. I think I'd keep Sophia. Uh, that is the same answer you gave last time, James. So you're a man. You're a man of your word. You're, you're, yeah. you're a man of your heart. I love it. I love it. Absolutely, yeah. And um, this is possibly the most important question of this right. podcast. You can answer this however, how, 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 however you like. What does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? <laughs> Uh, I'm so glad I knew, I can guarantee it would be underwhelming. It's so much better that it's in our imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it can be anything then. And I doubt they ever were told what they were meant to say, or they even have an answer. It's it's whatever we want it to be. And that's always the most powerful thing, isn't it? Our imagination. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, I think it was, don't listen to Seth Green. He's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very possibly. I mean, it's, 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 it's as soon, and I'm so glad they don't actually answer it. I, people don't really ask so much now, but they certainly did around the time. Yeah. That was, um, and I'm so glad there isn't, not that I'm aware of anyway, uh, because it's just the genius of, and some people just don't want this. They don't want open-ended things in films. They want answers to everything. I'm very much more a, a kind of open-ended person. I love the unknown in the films. What happened to the other guys in The Virgin Suicides, the other boy? We don't know what happened to them. Yeah. It's unknown. Um, and I love that. But not knowing is really exciting. The ambiguity. Yeah, ambiguity is the, the best. Like, I, I, love, I love it in films. Kind of, I, I watched Infinity Pool just last night, and that's kind of got like an ambiguous ending. And I was like... Yeah, love this. my okay. favourite Before I let you go, James, where's the best place for people to get uh, to, to keep up to date with everything you're doing? Oh, yeah, with yeah. Um, oh, or... Instagram, uh, James King Movies on Instagram, um, on TikTok as well. I think it's James King Movies, I remember. But yeah, Instagram's the main one. So, and I put a lot of interviews and things up there as well. So um, come and say hi and, and follow. And uh, hopefully there's some interesting stuff on there for you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming and making some Coppola connections with me. Oh, bless you. Thank you so much. It's so good to see you again. That was so much fun. A massive thank you to James King for joining me for this episode as well as a massive thank you to the guys at Studio Canal UK for hooking me up with a couple of fantastic copies to give away in a competition over on Twitter and Instagram and a copy for myself to see the beautiful 4K restoration of this film which looks absolutely fantastic so be sure if you don't own this on yeah it's a great 4K Blu-ray set so go out and get it it's packed full with some amazing extras as well so do yourself a favor get virgin suicided up not 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 in the way that that sounded that sounded really bad didn't it i just meant get it get get this get this blu-ray 4k in your collection today 
and a massive thank you as always to you guys for listening if you feel like uh, me and james missed out anything on this film or we kind of got it wrong maybe you feel differently about this film don't hesitate to get in touch on all the socials so that is twitter instagram facebook letterbox and tiktok all at caged in pod or you can drop me an email which is caged in pod at gmail.com as for the next episode on the podcast you can join myself and claire ellen hope from the fantastic w rated podcast later on this week where we'll be talking about a fiasco not a fiasco ladies and gentlemen we're talking about the feminine a fiasco involving helicopters grammys and the daughter of sophia coppola so join us then when we kind of run around figure some stuff out talk about sophia's relationship with fame uh, and how, how yeah how how that has transpired into uh, a recent uh, sensation with her daughter so if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode of the podcast and would like to support what we're doing here you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where as little as like two dollars a month you can help us out you can give us some cashola you can put some money in the bank um, and get some great stuff along with it soon to be released is a brand new mini series with myself and will chich entitled ruddy hell where we'll be looking at the films of producer albert s ruddy who famously produced the godfather and has got a kind of weird wonderful and illustrious career in producing it just felt like a fun kind of tangential way to talk about movies still but also have it linked to the coppola family if you don't want to give us your cash that is absolutely fine you can support the podcast by heading over to apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you're listening to this right now and leaving a lovely five star rating and review and when writing your review please be sure to let me know what bill murray says to scarlett johansson at the end of lost in translation so as ever guys i've been petrus patsylivus your guide through the crazy world of the coppola family tree remember to keep it caged in and i'll catch you next time hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, 
a Drooptown Limery, Maine franchise, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.